You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. It is supposedly recording. Oh, now it's up. This is weird. It started at minus 59 and is counting down. Minus 53, minus 52, minus 51. And I'm getting no voice levels. Well. What does minus 42 mean? (laughs) Well, is is it continuing to count down? Yeah. Let's see what happens when it gets to zero. We're at minus 32. All right. Well, mine's counting up. I'm at 55. Oh, that doesn't even align. 57. <laughs> no. I don't, this new system is really, really grinding my gears. I'm at minus 20, which means you should be at 45 seconds right now. I'm at 110. This, what? Let's just, just hang tight here. It says we're recording. I believe Six, I can hear you. Boom. Now we're counting up at one. <laughs> oh, man. I don't really understand, but it says recording on my end. So we're off to a good start. I don't know if any of that's staying in or not, but hello, Bracken. Hello, Kirk. Let's talk about the important things, Bracken. Uh, after four weeks after surgery, you went for a speed sprinkle. Oh, Kirk, I ran yesterday. Woo! Tell me and more. I had the I had the exact same thing happen that happened on my first time running last time, which is my calves felt like I was either tearing them or starting to cramp within not a whole lot of time on feet. Why do you think that is? Uh, because I worked on my calves both after my knee surgery and after this hernia surgery. And so I think they got a little tighter and I have not impacted the ground in 31 days. Yeah, that'll sting. So what did you do? You told me some corners work out at the soccer. Diagonals. Diagonals. Yeah. Start at one end of the football field or the soccer field and just run diagonally across it. Walk across the end zone. Run diagonally the other way back. Walk across the end zone. It ends up making an hourglass shape. And what is your reasoning behind choosing that? Like that, that runner workout? Well, I have to run walk to start with. Mm-hmm. It's soft, stable terrain. And I like the turf because it's pretty much as soft as grass, but I don't have to worry about divots. And something about running diagonally allows me to not run it as a hard acceleration, where if I just run it straight parallel to the track down, I want to overrun. So I just start jogging the first one and I just build up into, I kind of just want to run my best stride without putting in any effort the whole time. So by the end, I was probably down to like 505, 510 pace for 100 meters and then walk for 40 seconds kind of thing. Started at like nine minute pace, work just casually down, feeling feeling my legs move through the different range of motion. And that's it. And then my calves gave out. on me. <laughs> I got a total of 19 minutes in of combination walking and running before my calves were ready to cramp. Well, congratulations. That sounds silly, but that's a, it's a big day when you're returning from something like that. How, how did your, uh, your growing, your growing feel? How did your growing feel? As the pace picked up, developed more of like an arch to my pelvis and the lower part below my stomach, as I, you know, kind of leaned forward with a little bit of pace, uh, I felt tight down through there and I had to like mm-hmm. stretch out and I was actually sore between my, like my belly button and growing for, and that's growing for any new listeners. Nope. It's growing. <laughs> I'm just saying the word growing incorrectly. It's a, it's a thing. So if you're new to the podcast, you're just gonna have to let that go. Let it slide. Anyways, I was tight through there and then it kind of stretched out. I guess I haven't been doing a whole lot of like pushing my belly out. So yeah. That's what it was. So when is like, what's your pro- process every other day, slowly increase time. So today I'm going 30, 30 at about 10% incline. 
at about at 10% incline, just aerobically, high end aerobic, 30 mm-hmm. seconds on, 30 seconds off. Same thing, going until my body says, this is a good stopping point today. And then I'll do a day of non-impact. And then I'll repeat that. And that's my six day cycle. Well, I don't know if anybody's in your corner more than I am, Bracken. I feel like we've been through thick and thin together already on this injury front. So I'm rooting for you. Now, in that saying, thick and thin, does that mean when the troubles are <laughs> thick or thin or when the good times, like is thick good or is thin good? I thought it meant weight fluctuations. I mean, it might. <laughs> the possibilities are endless, really, if you think about it. Well, either way, you've been with me through both. <laughs> I just don't know if I'm if it's been more thick or if it's been more thin. I'm kidding. I uh, I don't think it has to do with weight fluctuations, but I think thick is the good times and thin is the bad times. Okay. Through thick and thin, the good times are when you're fat and happy, right? By olden day slang. And the thin times are when That's you're true. skinny and emaciated and times are hard. So I'm going with that. And I didn't know if it was, you're like, you're in the thick of it now, boy. <sighs> Somebody chime in for us. We're helpless. But yeah, if it's a little thin, you're you're low on everything, I suppose. So yeah, it's been a lot, lot of thin health-wise. But we're coming yeah. through this and you've got your fitness back and that's like my, that you're my goalpost now. That's where they've been moved to. And that was after, that was after five months of no running, took five full months off. And that was a year, it'll be two years in November. It's like a year and a half ago. And I've had some niggles and niggles in between there, but I mean, five months, no running. And yeah. I came back and put some fitness together. So speaking of you race this weekend got it handed to me and you kind of like withheld information so we could talk about it on the podcast no i did not it's the only downside of having this podcast is sometimes we say you know what let's save it and really discuss it there so it's new and mm-hmm. fresh you told me the the overview but i want the i didn't get the race recap other than you said i got my ass handed to me man did i and and i i was in no man's land basically the entire from like mile five on um, but yeah, I ran a, a 25 K, uh, trail race with about, I mean, just a titch under 2000 feet of gain at Afton state park. It's one of my favorites. It's one brings out really good local competition. So you get some decent competition. Um, that's the hilliest state park within driving distance. Yes. You're smiling. I got a text from you the night before the race. Yeah. And it had an expletive in it and said, this guy's showing up. <laughs> Well, so for those of you, most of you who know, like when you sign up for races, you can go into, if it's affiliated with ultra sign up, if that's how they use their race registration, you can go in on the back end and see who's all registered. Kind of like you could in the Spartan days of old, you could go mm-hmm. on Athlinks and see who is going to be there. Well, the night before the race, I checked and I was like, there were two people ranked in front of me that had a better ultra sign up score. And my sign up score is like 98.9%, which is a good ultra sign up score. I'd only lost one race um, uh, up to that point. I've lost my second now. Spoiler alert. But uh, <laughs> anyways, this kid was on there and I was like, who is uh, who is this guy? Tyler, Tyler German or Germain. And so I looked him up and I was like, oh, fantastic. He's a 212 marathoner. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who's wondering, uh, he ran 503 per mile for the marathon, which is decently fast. Um, and I thought, what the heck is this guy doing here? His first trail race, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I knew that there was going to be somebody there, but I thought, you know, it's the trails, like his road fitness isn't going to translate perfectly. Is it appeared to translate it pretty perfectly Bracken. So, so we were dealing with that. How long was the race? Uh, time-wise time-wise and distance 15.5 miles or 25 K and, um, let's call it an hour 40, give or take, depending on how fast you are for the winter. Typically the winter hovers within two to three minutes of an hour 40. Some years it's a little slower than hour 40. Some years a little faster than hour 40, Um, but Mm. right around there. Yeah. So you're talking like three quarters distance of a marathon time-wise. Yeah. Let's call it that. Okay. So if you're trying to break 230 in a marathon, that's what you think Mm. your goal is. Let's say 229. And he recently ran 216 with a PR of 212. You guys have a 13 minute current fitness gap in a marathon. Mm-hmm. So if you take three quarters of that, call it eight, nine minute gap by the finish line should be about where you would finish behind him. Precisely where it was too. Really? <laughs> yes. Okay. So you held your own. 
No, I mean, I, I gave up is what happened. I, I found okay. a friend and gave it. So, so that doesn't help in a race. <laughs> no, I didn't give up. What, what I'm happened, saying phoning what, a friend, there's no benefit uh, from that. No, no, there's not. Um, but no, I took second place. I ran of all things. Uh, you couldn't do this if you tried. I ran eight seconds faster than I did last year on the exact same course, eight seconds. And the conditions were almost similar. It was a dry course. They do the same trail every year. It's the same route. Eight seconds when it's all said and done. And the reason I'm disappointed a little bit is because I know I am in significantly better shape than eight seconds faster than last year. So did I leave something on the table? Yes. But guess what? If I ran seven minutes faster, Bracken, I still would have lost. And guess Mm -hmm. what? If I ran seven minutes slower, Bracken, I still would have taken second place. (laughs) Talk about no man's land. I was yeah. on my own planet. You were a mile clear on either side. By the end. It was absolutely astonishing. And so there's a part of the course where you can take a look back. You do a big rim around this field. And I was like, well, he is way the heck up there. I could see him. And I had a, he had a three-minute time gap on me at like the halfway point. And I looked back and I, couldn't even, and I couldn't even see anybody that was within three minutes of me at that point. And I was like, well, what on earth uh, am I going to do here? And I was hurting really badly already. And in fact, it was actually not one of my days. Like my climbing felt oddly terrible. And I was like, this is feeling more labored than it should. And so I ran hard enough to like run respectably. Um, But what happened is I got caught up in somebody else's race the first three miles, only three of a 15 mile race. You think you could come back from that. But at that point, I was over revved a little hot. We came through the first mile in 502. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) So you've got a guy who is able to hold 503 for a marathon and you're looking to try to hold like 530. Sure. 525. Sure. And your choice, your decision was, I'm going to go with him. Yep. Yeah. So you went with him for three miles. Uh, Let's call it. No, let's call it two. And then realizing that I was in way over my head. Well, no wonder you punched <laughs> bad. <laughs> you went out in 502. A gradual downhill for the first half mile. And then you climb like the last 10th of that mile. So it's a net negative, I think, slightly. Um, but anyways, and my GPS didn't connect because my GPS has been uh, the worst. So my first mile clicked through in 747. Uh, I also ran two miles shorter on Strava, according to my watch. So <laughs> I was blind out there. I didn't know what we were running. I looked, my fastest mile out there was like 7.30. And I'm like, I'm running 5.30 right now, without question. And it's just ding and slow. So I'm blind out there running like off a of field, which I can do. But I thought, well, obviously my GPS is being a POS. Still is today, by the way. It's like not functioning. So, um, so that's why I just decided to run somebody else's race from the start. Lisa's too, by the way. She commented on mine. It's been three runs in a row now. It's bizarre. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. What's hers doing? Uh, Not following the road half the time or part of the time. It'll just be all over the place. And then from time to time, she'll be at like six minute pace, nine minute pace, six minute pace, nine minute pace before it settles in. I ran quarter mile fartlek today just to get some turnover in the legs. Quarter mile on, quarter mile off. My fastest quarter, according to my watch, was 445 pace. And my slowest was 805 pace on the exact same route. Really? Uh-huh. So you That's told me. Yeah. Okay. So if I had to take a guess in the mind of Kirk DeWint, mm-hmm. you ran with him and decided to go for it because it'd be suicide on the roads, but your trail acumen would bring you closer to him and his lack of it would then bring him closer to you in theory. Correct. I thought he was going to get out over his head. The technical parts were later and I wanted to keep him in sight so I could grab him. We had a hairpin turn about a half mile into the race and he tiptoed around that thing like he'd never done that before in his life. Now, he was wearing alpha flies, which I understand why he would <laughs> tiptoe around a hairpin turn. Um, however, yeah, I, think, I figured it would, um, it would catch, catch him on the backside, uh, which did not happen. In fact, if this... What was the terrain? Because I own alpha flies, and I would be very hesitant to take the, those on anything trail-wise that wasn't hard-packed dirt. Well, they were the next percents, whatever those are, I guess. Is. Well, it's either that or the Vaporfly, and they have the same bottoms, essentially. Yeah. Uh, some of it is like pea gravel and, you know, groomed sort of paths, and some is winding technical. 
Uh, there's a few quite rocky sections. You've run there with me. Um, oh, yeah. There's grass, too. Mm-hmm, and grass. I would not yep. want to run grass. A lot of rolling grass, but uh, a lot of it is runnable, and it was a very dry year, so we haven't had rainfall recently. But um, that was it. It was, um, you know, I was... Well, by the time we got to the top of the first climb, which happened at about the mile and a half mark, it's a 250 foot climb. I mean, my heart rate was already at 181 when I summited that thing. And then I decided <laughs> to continue to to push and um, then realized, like, I don't want to lose. Like, I really didn't want to lose. And I thought maybe there was some fool's hope that the great equalizer would be the terrain. It wasn't. So um, so that was it. That was that. That'll be my summary. And then I just held on. And in fact, I got. What was I? There's a there's a hill there called Meat Grinder, which is like a 250 foot climb, which is as good as it gets out there, right? About 250 feet of consecutive climbing, and I mean I power hiked four times on the backside of this course where I didn't do one step of power hiking last year. I started like having weird dehyd, like you know my legs were starting to tingle and go. I was getting weird sensations, like I was like, hmm. dude, you are working too hard. So point being is I, I I threw in the towel, which I haven't done in a long time still finished faster than last year, but got very humbled. And this is the second race now where somebody like we say, there's levels to everything. And, and people hear us on the podcast talking about our paces and our times and thinking that, you know, wow, it's, you know, very inspiring to try to run that quickly. And then I go and just be like on a, on another planet fitness lies fitness wise from somebody. So, um, that was my experience. Wow. Well, 212 is national level. Correct. There are years that 212 makes the Olympic team. Correct. 212 gets you paid to come to Boston Marathon as a male some years. Yeah, quick. 212 is legitimately fast. Fast, fast. Again, 503 for 26.2 miles, which means that he can recover from a climb or descent or anything that dings him, his gas tank, he can recover at about 515, 520 pace. That's recovery. Mm -hmm. No, wild. yeah, it's good. It's good to be humbled though, but it was, um, uh, and he did, he did run. I was to his, to his uh, defense. He ran grandma's two weeks earlier and ran two sixteen, And what he said, walked it in after mile 17. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> I get to walk into two sixteen. That sounds nice. Uh, um, did you go back and look at his splits at grandma's? I didn't. I wonder did if he you? came through the half at like 104, 105. I guess I'd have to look. And then it went like 60, 71 on the back half. Yeah, we'll have to look. But um, yeah, it's the second time, like I said, on, on these uh, these rock steady running races, which are great, where some like national caliber runner has showed up. Um, for reference on this course, um, the uh, if you remember our buddy Mike Ferguson, who used to be a high level racer, and he was doing well in the uh, in the national series back in what 2017, 2018, he mm -hmm. was running pretty well. He ran an hour fifty two on this course. I ran an hour forty one, and he ran that in his prime years. So like fitness is great. It's just not as great as like a full time sponsored paid endurance athlete, and that was obvious. Yep, there are levels to it all, and fast is relative to everyone. Sure is. I did a call this weekend with a guy who said, you know, and I, you know, I'm not trying to do what you guys are trying to do. I'm not trying to run Kirk's crazy marathon pace. And I just kind of giggled because I thought Kirk right now would feel that his marathon pace is pretty sluggish compared to 212 over here <laughs> lining up next right. to him. Yeah. How's that make you feel about your, uh, your speed sprinkles at 515 pace? <laughs> I mean, my depressing piece isn't the pace. Cause my stride felt like I knew how to run. That was fantastic. Hmm. Mine is that I cramped with 19 minutes of walk run. And, uh, six months ago I raced, I redlined for six hours of Hills. <laughs> so I know it comes back. This happened to me last time. Yeah. Kent was coming down soon after I started jogging again. He, he, I rabbited him for that one mile. Do you remember yep. that? Yep. And so three days before I did my first try to pick up the pace at all. I went to the track and did some two hundreds and I went back to change out of my flats to cool down. And as I stood up, my calves started cramping and twinging. Hmm. So this is what they do. I guess this is my thing. My calves atrophy a little bit or get tight or can't handle the impact. And then they come back real quick. So I know I'm okay with it, but it's, yeah, and it's good to be humbled from time to time. Well, it brings up the point about, you know, I think what we're going to dissect just a little bit today will be, 
you know, when to run your own race and when to run what we would say somebody else's race, mm -hmm. taking calculated risks or, um, like when it makes sense to do one or the other or neither really. Yeah. And this last weekend, I can tell you with objectivity, I think I could have been three minutes faster if I ran my own race. I think I could have been three minutes faster. For example, you have splits for the first half and second half last year versus this year, correct? My GPS wasn't wasn't really working. So uh, I know so I know time wise roughly where I was at at a certain marker, only one marker when I looked down at my watch last time. What is that marker? It was like forty six minutes and change last year, and this year it was like forty three and change, forty three low. So you were plus six minutes, 43 minutes into the race, and you were plus total of eight seconds an hour after that. I was about four minutes faster halfway into the race, and then I, and I bled that all back out the back half. Yeah, that is a rough way uh -huh. to do it. It's a painful way to do it. You know that sentiment, how they say, even though I kind of uh, gave up with putting my foot down the, on the gas the last few miles when I realized mm -hmm. how alone I was, but I really think taking second is the most painful place in a race. Yeah. Second place, I feel like hurts guarantee like the winner doesn't hurt nearly as much because they're the winner. They can hurt a lot. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about winning that eases the sting a little bit. Mm -hmm. When you put it all out there and you end up like second, I feel like that guy who's trying to win but doesn't. That guy, those are the two most painful races I've run in recent history, and I took second in both of them. So there's got to be some there's got to be some correlation there. Yeah. The most painful position is the highest finisher who is pulled away from mm -hmm. whatever that position is. If someone kicks and gets second place, you finish feeling like the first place felt you get some good juices flowing in you. Good chemicals are pumping. The highest finisher who got gapped is the most painful because you have to go through the same race with none of the extra juice or motivation or finishing consolation of, Hey, you won. That's a mm -hmm. terrible feeling. Yeah. Yeah, but it's good. It'll be good. Uh, it'll be good stimulus for the old body mm -hmm. come around. It's the highest average heart rate. It's the highest average heart rate I've, I've held for that amount of time. 175 beats a minute for me at 39 years old. I would say that's pretty high wow. to hold that for an hour 40. That's a lot. That's a lot. Last year was an hour. Last year was an, uh, 172 and I ran it about the same time. So it's obvious I overcooked and then just stayed so to speak. I have a few questions about this. Okay. Let's just get my question out of the way. And then we'll ask the audience's question. Actually, some of the audience will definitely care about this question. You raced in the Hoka Tecton X. I did. Which is a very new shoe. For those who aren't yet up to date on it, it is basically the Hoka's Challenger with lighter, bouncier foam, better tread, and twin parallel carbon plates in the midsole. It is light. It is designed as a trail racer, but it has their first attempt at a carbon plate. And they actually use two decoupled so that it's not as tippy for the trails. So I, I want to hear your race recap because I ran in it once and it was mostly at aerobic pace and I was 85 miles into a hundred mile week. So I wasn't in the best position to evaluate how snappy that shoe is. So give me the recap. Or you were in a good position. <laughs> To evaluate <laughs> That's how snappy that shoe was. I only picked up the pace that day for about two minutes. Well, what was your impression? I'll give you mine. I had plenty of time to run in it. It had less rock than I thought it would have. It didn't have that tipping forward sensation of the typical carbon plate. Um, I love a rocker bottom, which it has, but it's not a severe rocker. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel the plate at all, except for stiffness. It was just mm -hmm. a little stiffer on my legs. Uh, stepping down on a... I, I was with uh, Tim Lambiris, one of our recent interviews, and I kept trying to step on rocks and on roots and on logs to see what would happen. And if you hit right on top, you could feel one plate dip to the side and the other one not. So it mm -hmm. had a bit of extra of that going on, but it didn't feel inherently tippy or like I was going to roll my ankle, but certain plants, you know how it feels when you step on a rock or a root, it felt different. And that was it. And then mm. when I picked up the pace, I did an acceleration and I probably got down, hung around low fives for a while and maybe some high fours for just like two or three minutes. It was the best the shoe felt. 
it felt better. It felt fine as an easy goer, but it felt best when I was moving fast, but it also took me a long time to get the lockdown right on that shoe. Hmm. So that's my full summary off one 17 mile run. It's not a bad summary. It's oh, uh one last thing. If I didn't lean into the downhill, it felt bad going downhill. Oh, I actually felt uncomfortable in that shoe going downhill. If I didn't try to run fast. Okay. Well, it's definitely spongier than I anticipated. Like I, and my only, you know, my carbon shoes would be the Hoka carbon X and the Saucony Endorphin Pro, and those have a very firm feel to it. So I expect those are two of the hardest shoes. Correct. And I had a, I had a, like an assumption that this would feel nice and firm on the ground, but in fact, it feels very spongy, even a lot like the Evo Speed Goat, which I love. It's got some cush to it, which you just don't associate. I didn't associate with what I expected. Um, I agree with you. It feels better when you run faster, but there's so much shoe there and there's still enough stack height where like, you could wear that shoe and be well protected for a long, slow run and not feel like you're being an idiot for it. In an example. I agree. Um, however, uh, it's very light for like the stack height on it. It's unusually light. Um, and I was able to, what I think it did nicely for me is once I kind of lost power, um, it, it helped me maintain efficiency. My stride okay. did feel pretty smooth. Even when I was tired, if I could get any flat running, when we hit it, I was like, oh, it was like time to recover because my body went into a, a stride that was very economical. So I don't think the Tecton X helps you in any capacity going up or downhill. In fact, I like other shoes more for going up or downhill for sure. I felt like I didn't have as good a contact with the ground going up. Um, and I would like the more aggressive shoe at times. And then going down, I'd want a shoe that locks me in a little better. However, it's like a seven out of 10 on the scale for both of those things, because it's still a really good shoe. But I see that shoe being like a great shoe. Like if you can ever, like, it doesn't improve your efficiency when you're running up or downhill, really. Where it really shines is when you can run flatter or shallow grades. I <laughs> found it to be uh, notably helpful. Um, but it doesn't like make you a better climber. It doesn't make you a better descender, but it did. Yeah. Align up with my, on the efficiency front when I could run like normal flattish terrain. If you can wrap your head around that. Yeah. You said after your last trail race where you took the Scott super track RC, which yep. is one of our, when we did our shoe recommendations, that was our mid to long distance trail racer yep. in non-sloppy conditions. You said you were disappointed because they had a lack of like almost structure or pop on the flats. When you got to the flats at the end, the other guy, he was in the Pulsar from Solomon mm -hmm. and just looked like he was in racing flats and you felt like you were in a, a dead trail shoe. Yep. How exactly. would you compare that feeling to the Tecton X when you got to those similar places? Night and day difference. Tecton really? X, I was, oh, I was practically recovering on the flats and I had all the bounce and cush. I never felt that feeling once. It absolutely saved my legs I would say okay. more than more than a, a lower stack height shoe um, okay. or with something firmer. Yeah, it, it was a leg saver. I think this shoe would really shine. I think my race distance, I may choose it again for a race that's an hour and a half. Um, but I think that shoe shines on further yet. Like, really? Like, yeah, I mean, hour and a half, you could justify it. If I was going to run on, an, on a trail race and it was a 10 miler and it was relatively flat or rolling, that may be the shoe I would choose because of the efficiency piece. But like if I were to go run like a mountain race, if it's long. That shoe just, it saved my legs. They didn't feel very beat up afterwards. I worked hard. My heart rate shows it, um, but I didn't take as much damage. So there's some, there's something to it that, that it's a great shoe. I just might pick something. Yeah. Pick something a little more locked in for more uh, steeper technical terrain or something shorter. Would you race it in Tahoe? No, absolutely not. Really? Mm -mm. you wouldn't take it on technical. I don't think I'd be able to run downhill. I guess I'd have to play with the lock a little bit, but um, I'd want something. I'd want something that really hugged me, my foot a little bit better. Okay. Mm -hmm. I would say good. Great shoe though. Like I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm not, I feel like I'm maybe saying how I like it. Like it seems less than how I actually like it. I love the shoe. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's going to really shine in some longer stuff and where you can use a running stride versus like an uphill stride or a downhill stride. Because that carbon plate really becomes less helpful in, in either of those other, you know, going up or down. So so maybe a rolly or flat trail ultra, would you consider that for? 100%. Yeah. 
without question. 50K, no question. Be the shoe I'd pick without without a doubt. Okay. A Spartan Ultra Beast, 100%, no matter where it was. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, yeah. Fantastic. So that would be your Ultra Beast shoe of choice if it wasn't like a slop fest? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I was impressed with how much it preserved the legs. Yeah. If you had to do it over, would you consider running in your Endorphin Pro for this race? Yes. Really? I was curious about that, and I thought about it in hindsight. I think the benefits would have outweighed the the, uh, cost on this course because they let you open up a few times. Um, So I think the answer is yeah. Wow. Okay. But barely. You could convince me otherwise. If there was a sprinkle of rain that night, maybe not. But yeah. But rave review for the Hoka, the or the the Tecton. It's just I thought it might be like, oh, I'm going to run a 10k on the trails. I want a really fast, um, carbon plate advantage. And I d- I don't know if I felt that in it. I'd probably, as actually, Danny Moreno said, she'd probably pick the Zanal for shorter, faster races. She said it herself. Uh, now I understand why. Yeah. After running in it, I put it on my feet, and Tim and I looked at each other, and we both said. This feels way lighter than I anticipated it feeling. Then it looks because it's a bigger shoe almost. Yeah. It feels light on foot, which is a big component of racing. It's just Mm -hmm. not feeling like you're lugging something around. But then as we started walking, there's that feeling in a carbon plated super shoe that you don't get in this. Where if you told me while I was walking in it that it had carbon plates, I wouldn't believe you. So I'm... I'm not sure what the carbon plates role is in there. I don't know what it actually does unless it's just as rock protection, which Hoka generally doesn't need because it's so thick, the stack height, mm-hmm. or if it is to give form to the foam. That's a lot of what the carbon plate is more of a rocker for super shoes and it gives foam form. Otherwise, the sloppy plush foam will just splay out to the side. It needs something to help give it a rebound off the ground. The concept that a carbon plate is a spring for you is really misleading because you're never anchoring part of it to the ground. Like it can't be a springboard because nothing's anchored. It's moving the whole time, but it can rock you. It can propel you and it can give rebound to the, the super critical foam. And I didn't feel any rock to the plate. So all it could be doing is giving a rebound to the foam. Yep. I didn't, it didn't feel, if somebody told me that, uh, it did not have a carbon plate in them, I'd be like, well, of course it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it does. Um, but I felt pretty economical running flat. I will say like when we could open it up economical, yes. And I think it's a very versatile shoe in the sense where there's enough to it, where you could justify using it for your training as well as racing. So okay. I like that because it's very versatile and I will use it for training. Um, so you get more bang for your buck. You buy a $200 pair of shoes, you want to be able to use it. This shoe you absolutely can use. And I and it feels like it's one of those that are going to like hold up. Like 500 miles in, you might not be able to tell you've got a lot of miles in that shoe. That's my, that's my assumption. That would be fantastic for the $200 price. Because otherwise it's hard to justify. Because it's not a trail rocket. It's not that super springy, boingy picture of a super shoe that a lot of people have you're not buying magic sauce with this shoe nope nope but i do really believe like the way it feels it's going to be one of those that i can use in a year or two still even after i put miles on it if i want to Hmm. okay so yeah so i've yet to bomb a downhill in that shoe and i've yet to run a wide smooth trail i've done smooth twisty trail and single track but i haven't opened up in those two facets what did the downhill feel like when you leaned into it every downhill on that course but one is technical like yeah. to the point where you got to okay. tiptoe around. So hard, hard to say. I was able to open up on one and I felt like I could do so without my feet jamming in the end of my shoes and I wasn't moving around or sliding around. I tied them a little too tight on purpose and they kind of worked into a comfortable position as I started sweating a bit. But um, I would say not bad. I mean, I wasn't underwhelmed. Hmm. It did the job. I didn't think about my feet at all. Okay. That says a lot. My last trail race, I thought about my feet a lot. Okay. I think if you get through a race, you're not thinking about your feet. You're doing, you, you got a good shoe on your foot. The first thing I did when I got back from those shoes is I decided I'm putting Caterpie laces in them. Something mm-hmm. that will be able to let me dial. Cause it has a ton of eyelets. The eyelets go down all the way to your toes practically, which is very yeah. different about that shoe. So I think I'm going to be able to dial in some fit, but it's going to take some work, which I generally don't have tolerance for in shoes 
But I'm wondering if this is one of those shoes where when you get your fit dialed in, it kind of opens up how you can use the shoe. That's my hope. I could see that being the case, but I, I didn't try. I mean, the only time I wore the shoe bracken was in my warm up before the race. And I said, if I don't like it, <laughs> I got my Zanals. And if I like it, I'll keep them on. And I didn't have one blister. I stayed pretty locked in. This is a very fool's move to do something like this. I had a two mile warm up to test it out and said, green light. I like it. And it felt, it didn't feel any different, my like slow stuff. But then when I did my pickups in my warm up, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was my decision. So out of the box, it performed well. And as a shoe I was the most excited about in years, to be honest. And I think um, the only thing I'm just surprised, I didn't feel like it was a shorter distance shoe. I just, for some reason, assumed it would be. And it feels yeah. more like a, a longer distance shoe. That's it. That makes sense. Enough about that. Yep. Yeah. Well, okay. I have one remaining question about your race. I think okay. this is just, there are a lot of good takeaways when you race almost two hour race that it's not something that happens a lot where you go to the well and do it. And so there's always great takeaways for people. So I want to, I want to get this last one out. You talk about oftentimes how double race weekends jumpstart your fitness or springboard yep. you up ahead or big hard efforts do. So you just had an, almost a gray area one where it was an hour 40, what three hour 41 hour yep. 41 hour 41 of good high heart rate but you didn't finish off the race. You ran really hard and then you ran within yourself kind of. That that's I know that sounds a little bit softer than it was. Like you were hurting the whole time. My heart rate remained up and yeah, I was definitely hurting, but yes. But you switched out of your attack stride. I gave up on winning the race. Correct. Which I don't often do. Like it's not but at that point I, I realized where 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 reality had sat. So I guess what my question really is, is that if you had an hour 20-ish, somewhere in there, 80 minutes of just nasty effort, and then somewhere around 20 to 30 minutes of, I'm still working hard, but I'm not a 100% racing to win the race. That type of effort, that almost two-hour effort, is this a fitness-changing effort for you? Like what you did, because we believe that towards the end of a race, and long workouts, there's added benefit to using your good stride and working hard while your body's super fatigued because you recruit more muscle fibers to keep your stride and all that. Were you able to get that benefit out of this? Does this launch you forward or is this kind of like a, a good workout, but it didn't change me? Oh, for sure. Launches me forward. I mean, it's not going to do that for another week and a half. Mm-hmm. I'm only going to pay the price for this next uh, week or 10 days, but, um, for sure. Without question. Yeah. And, and they, there's a nice grant. The last mile is a gradual uphill. And if you're already at that point in the race, it was 180 and above to finish off the last, you know, hmm. five, 10 minutes. And so, so you didn't, you didn't throw it in the towel. No, but I gave up on winning. Correct. I didn't throw it, okay. throw in the towel. No, look at my heart rate data per mile. And it'll tell you that I still kept the pedal down. I just, I shot myself in both feet by the time I was halfway through the race. Mm-hmm. And so once you, everybody knows once you've blown up in a race or you've over revved and I, I was at a 15% grade and considering power hiking for a few steps somewhere at the halfway point. Cause I was just beyond myself. And that for me is very runnable at any race. And so that's how I, how I had known. And so then I was keeping an eye on my watch, watching my heart rate. It would drift on any climb way beyond where, and I'm like, you just gotta, like, if you keep letting it do this, you're gonna, you're gonna be real ugly. So then I, I started list, watching my, my data come in and then gauging my effort off of that, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. It does. So looking at this through the John Elbin frame of reference, that little conversation we had at the end about how he believes he can get more work done while he's tired in some sort of super shoe. And we debated whether that's good or bad for an athlete to practice something like that. Do you think those shoes allowed you to get more in terms of what's going to help you going forward in the last 25 minutes of your race than say the super tracks would have, do they allow you to keep your form together? Even if you were still slowing slightly. 100% without question. That shoe made me more efficient when I got tired. Cause I know exactly how I felt in my super tracks when I got tired and I know, ex- and we hit flat terrain and I know exactly how I felt in this shoe when I got tired and hit flat terrain. And it was not even night and day difference. This shoe allowed me to run more efficiently with a little less effort once I was tired. Yep. Bankrupt, so to speak. Because I've been thinking a lot about that since John's episode. Isn't that just a mind blow? That whole thing? I can't wrap my head around it. What it's, yeah. And I, I've, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years now since the super shoe came out. 
several years really, but I hadn't had a compelling argument one way or the other. And I respect John as an athlete. And it's always weird to see someone who's been a minimalist their whole life run an uphill half marathon in alpha flies. Right. I shouldn't say it's always because that's the only time I've seen that. But when you see someone you think to be one thing, do something that you're not sure about yourself. But it kind of struck me this weekend, Kirk, that this might be the poor man's alter G treadmill. <laughs> no one's ever debated the efficacy of getting on an underwater treadmill or, or an alter G treadmill and run at reduced body weight and get the work in. You still have to do the regular work as well, but it allows you to do more and it does benefit you and no one's ever said it doesn't. Is the super shoe suddenly a deal? Is 200 to $279 now a deal to be able to run on a poor man's alter G treadmill rather than having to pay $30,000 for a machine? Is that the way to look at this? Well, I did a quality workout today. And granted, mm -hmm. I have no idea how fast I ran because my GPS is out of its mind. Um, my body recovered oddly well. Like I, I was feeling pretty fast and springy. And I normally would push a quality workout back a day or two after a long race like that. Sure, I had a little bit of soreness, but it, it allowed me to get back to training faster. There's some weight in that, isn't there? Yeah. Saved my legs a hair. So I... What do you argue about that? Well, I th think that adds to what I'm saying. Yeah. You and I are two quality workout a week runners. Yeah. That's our bread and butter because we can work hard and then recover slow and then do it again. Yep. And it keeps us away from danger. Are we three quality workout a week runners if we do one or two of them in super shoes? Like, is that the difference? Is it a train? Because he talked about using the available technology to enhance his training. Is that a viable option or every other week, every other week at a third workout in, in alpha flies, the bounciest, cushiest things I've ever seen in my life. Is that a full workout of benefit with a half workout of damage? Makes my head hurt thinking about it. I will say after talking to John and it was a great interview. If you guys have not listened to John Albin's interview, he was uh, sharing way more than we could ask him to share about his insights mm -hmm. on his training for somebody who's recently as successful as he is. So we're super appreciative of that. But after talking to John about the super shoe and then literally getting my ass handed to me by a guy on the trails in a pair of alpha or super shoes, I think it was the vapor flies, whatever. Okay. Man, am I starting to think about just getting a pair and letting it rip and see what it does. Like John certainly hasn't gotten any worse. This no. this 29-year-old guy who's a 212 marathoner still went and ran fast as heck on the trails. And I mean, it had 2,000 feet of gain over 15 miles. So no, is it a mountain? But it's also still pretty hilly and technical at times. So maybe are we just, we're missing stimulus that we could be squeezing in otherwise. I agree with you. I'm going to be buying a pair. I'm going to buy my first pair. I'm going to buy one. Well, and I have them. I have a room full of them because they've either been sent to me, I've been given them at discount, or I was interested in testing them out for for knowing, for dealing with clients and talking on the podcast. But I haven't had a use for them because I stated early on, I'm not going to race in them for races that I care about my PR because it's going to be sort of a false PR. Do I have a use for them? I've got these tools sitting around. So it's got my wheels turning and I kind of pose it to the audience. We end this episode on on a gray note. Do you all think that this might be the accessible reduced impact training that the pros have had access, had access to all their lives? It's, it's something that I'm thinking on. I don't have the answer, but I'm now leaning towards this is what I'm going to be using as I recover, rehab, and build back up as a consistent tool in my training. I may never run a 5K race in them, but it might be my tool moving forward to get more work in. Well, and what John had said was that not only is he using them on hard days, but he's using them on easy, day, easy days in quotes. Like he then, mm -hmm. well, I can run faster on my recovery days, which means I'm running with a more economical stride on my recovery days, which is better for biomechanics and efficiency and injury prevention. So he's wearing a super shoe for like a hour long aerobic ish effort because of the efficiency piece. And that to me is the most mind blowing part. He can run at high end aerobic like he could run marathon stride at aerobic pace or aerobic effort, heart, heart rate, rate wise. Yeah. yeah, that it's really opened some some doors in my mind. And I'm interested to hear what other people have to say about that. 
Well, I, the itch needs to be scratched for me after my experience this weekend and hearing John. So I'm going to be doing it. Where do you think somebody should start? I guess if we're going to, since you've been so curious about my shoes and now we're talking about this, like where should somebody start if they're looking to dive into the super shoe pool? Like, how do you make that decision of which one? First of all, between the Alpha Fly and the Vapor Fly, if you're going to stick to Nikes and then the whole host of other options that followed. Well, I think you start with our shoe episode. I think that gives you a lot of the good information in order to choose what type of shoe do I look for. And we talk about what shoes are what. But then I think you start with whichever one. If you if you are stuck between a bunch, choose the cheapest one. Get yourself into a pair and see if it's even close to what you expected. But I would use our shoe episode and then price as the two. And if you if there's something near you, you can try on. But right now, Nike has a sale. They have vapor flies for 174 and they have alpha flies for 204. That is really, really cheap. I had to force myself not to order a pair. So it now is like those are the two head and shoulders above everything else. I think ASICS is closing the gap a little bit, but those are the two best on earth. And they're relatively affordable, all things considered. So that might be the place for people to start right now. What's the big difference between the Vaporfly and the Alpha Fly? How would you describe the difference? Vaporfly is an F1 car. It is designed to go fast. It is sleek. It is more narrow. It has a higher drop. It tips you forward. It's like running slightly downhill. It's very bouncy, very springy, very light, but it is streamlined. It is an attack mode. The Alpha Fly has way more stack height, a little bit more room, less aggressive tip, and way more bounce. So if I were to put on the Vapor Fly and run a mile, and the Alpha Fly and run a mile, I might run the same time. But my stride might be like 185, like at threshold effort. 185 in the Vapor Fly and like 169 in the Alpha Fly. Oh, wow. Because in the Vapor Fly, I'm going to turn over and turn over and turn over and be four foot striking and just do, 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 do. In the Alpha Fly, I'm going to boing, boing. It's just soft landing that propels you up and forward. So it's two totally different shoes. And generally, people respond to one or the other. I'm an Alpha Fly guy. It just is made for my stride. But they are very different. What do you think I'd be? I think you might do fine in either, but I don't know. You have to try them on. The moment I put on the vapor flies, I know eh, it's not for me as much. If I had to run an all out 5k or mile for my life, I might put those on. But I know I'm more efficient and I take way less damage in the alpha fly. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll see what I end up buying. Um, let's dive in really quick to just for like five to 10 minutes here. Cause we got our cutoff time. Um, when to run your own race and when to run the race presented in front of you. Let's try to just address that. Um, I I tried to run somebody else's race this weekend uh, for a short amount of time, and it cost me overall, you know, how I finished, I believe, time-wise anyways. Luckily, it didn't affect my placing. But how do you know when you should run your own race and when you should go out there and race? What do you think? I think there's two times to run someone else's race. When you are looking for a breakthrough or a learning experience, and when you're trying to tactically win a race, maybe not even tactically is the right term. But so if you're new to sport or if you're new to a level of fitness or new to trying something out, sometimes you just got to pick someone and latch onto them and go learn. And maybe it pulls you through to a breakthrough. But the other time is when I'm just, I need a place. Like my first world championship in Killington. I envisioned all year, all year long, two scenarios. And my scenario was I am running with the leaders. If there are two or more leaders, I will let one person go. I will let two people go, but if, sorry, more than two leaders, but if three or more go, that is my race. If not, I will let one or two go. And I am sitting with the pack for the next one because my only goal that entire year was top three. And so I knew Hobie was possibly going to go. I thought if Hobie leaves and no one goes with, I let him go. But if the race goes with them, then I'm committed to running their race because I need to be up there with them. And as it turned out, Cody was leading Hobie. Hobie went with Cody. No one else even had a chance to go with. So I signed off immediately. And I just settled with that, th- that second group. 
And so mm -hmm. I, I, I went in with two strategies, but I was prepared that if that group went with them, I'm all in. So if you're concerned about placement above all else, or if you're just looking to learn, those are the times to run someone else's race. Or if you just need to suffer, think it'd be good for you. Yeah, I suppose. Feel that callous. If you want some race course S&M, get out there and go after it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, the risk at hand is obviously the blow up and it is a very painful way to race. And when we say run somebody else's race, I'm not insinuating you run a guy that is slower than you their race. I guess I'm insinuating you're running the race of somebody who's faster than you. The other version of that is sitting and kicking, so to speak. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about leveling up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be willing to deal with the consequences. Yes. Like, if you can lie, if you've already come to terms with the fact that you are not going to be happy with your finish before the race is even started, in case something like that happens, you're going to be all right. You're going to go, you're going to make your grave, you're going to lie in it. And as long as you can finish saying, hey, at least I know I tried, no real harm done. If you're the type of person who's going to really beat yourself up and go into this downward spiral of my fitness is shit and da, 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 and you're going to, you know, you know how, you know who you are if you don't have a good race, um, then you might want to reconsider taking those risks because it great reward, but, um, but there's a good, a good chance you're going to, you're going to blow up too. And that's, as we know, not the most enjoyable way to spend time yeah. on a race course. I suppose that's the best way to sum it up. You must be aware of the consequences and make peace with them. Before the race has even started. Yeah. Yeah. If you're or nationals, like you did in track at nationals, made it to the finals. I'm just latching on and I'm running my life away because I'm already here. Yep. Worst case, I'm still in the finals at nationals. Best case, I snag all American and it worked out for you, but that's the time. Mm -hmm. Like I under, I understand the consequences and I'm okay with either one. Yeah. It's like if you're an age group athlete and you're trying to like, look, go after like a Spartan national series or something. And you know, like the only way for you to bump from third to second is if you win the last race of the year and you're like, well, we got to go for it. Yeah. And if you die, at least you die swinging. And so there's, there's times in which it is very appropriate. I actually would say that the, you know, my decision-making was poor. Like, it was a fool's dream more than anything, but there was still some hope. And I just, you know, I made my bed lied in it and still worked out that I ran nearly the same time as the year before. But, and yet I think it's going to be valuable for you when you run your marathon, right? Because you're going to feel this race when that guy who's trying to run 222 starts moving ahead 5k into the race. And you're going to know, I felt the difference between these paces mm -hmm. after an hour and a half. In the moment, it never seems quite as bad. And then you know you've made a terrible mistake. So you'll have that in your back pocket for your first marathon. Yeah, and it's usually once you realize you, uh, you've you made a mistake, it's already too late. Yeah, it's like thirst. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Once you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you went through it, and I'm happy for you that you went through it. And I kind of did in the Zumbro 17-mile trail race in April, too. Mm -hmm. The guy took off. I went with him, stuck with him for three, four miles and eventually got dropped, suffered and closed slower than I did last year too. It's the same, same thing. It's an interesting way to, to run. Um, cause I typically am a little more conservative early historically. And so this has been really good for my growth as an, I think more than anything, but when, when don't you run somebody else's race? When you can't afford to. How do you know if you can't afford to? When the, when the risks are not greater than the rewards, and when you have a path to victory that is not dependent upon someone else, mm -hmm. there are times you see the better athlete run someone else's race and lose. When your path to success is your way and you choose someone else's race, it's the wrong choice every single time. So many times people leave PRs on the board because they get caught up in the moment and yep. they always regret it. So people are happy that they pull the trigger on something when they hit the shot. But when missing the shot is not worth taking the shot, that's when you don't do it. But really, you got to know yourself as an athlete enough to know that I'm better doing it my way in this scenario. And then trust yourself. You generally know when the risk is worth it. Deep down, yeah. you know. Yeah, there's, uh, I think a general rule of thumb is uh, the longer the race, like the more you need to run your own race. 
the less you should attempt to run somebody else's, the more time you have to pay for making a mistake out on courses in a longer race. Um, and then you're really setting yourself up to like underperform in a big way, potentially if you burn too hot. So I would say the longer the race, uh, the less just playing the odds here, the less likely you should run somebody else's race and the mm-hmm. shorter the race, uh, the more consideration you should give it if it makes sense, given the circumstances, yeah. but try, try running like for you Spartan athletes out there trying to go to Utah, which is going to be a two hour and 15 minute race for the winner. <laughs> try to go run somebody else's race for three hours or more. It's, it's not going to end well typically. So, um, that's just like one general rule of thumb. I think people should consider. I think the decision is easiest when there's prize money. If it's $10,000 for first place and nothing for second, you you can look at that real easy and say, yeah, I'm going to go after the win. And if I blow up, who cares? Right. But if it's 10,000 for first, 8,000 for second, nothing for third, how would you have raced on Saturday? Ooh, I would have been a little more conservative, of course. Yeah, really. Yeah. And, and that's easy to look at when it's money like that. But when there's mm-hmm. not money, you have to rank your own currency of what's important to you. Like, is this a boomer bust for me, this race? Or is there some real tangible currency for second place or second best option for me? And that helps make it a little easier which style to choose. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it's always clear. And a lot of times you actually have to feel it out. Like you show up to a race, you don't know who your competition is. So now you're just showing up and some guy goes out like a bat out of hell and he goes, that guy for real or is he mm-hmm. is he faking it? And you don't, and you don't really know. So there are decisions to be made and then it comes down to knowing yeah. your fitness. Um, but I don't know. I feel like this conversation happens a lot in OCR about athletes looking to break through, right? Like there's always these conversations, especially with the age group athletes I have, it's like, we're constantly talking about making that next jump or landing on the next podium. And how do I break through and catch the guys in front of me? And at some point you just got to throw your hat in the ring and see what happens, you know? Yeah. On the flip side, it it could cost you taking your typical fourth and fifth and you could take 15th because you completely self-implode along the way. But um, I just think for the athlete looking to make the jump, it might make a little more sense as well at times. And having that parachute plan, that backup plan is super important. You know, that, that phrase, that military phrase, no plan survives enemy contact or the Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Mm -hmm. Races will do that. And it changes immediately depending on what the enemy contact is or how hard that punches. So having that backup plan like yours, realizing how I had to get back to work and hold my stride and keep it going and fight. Like, no, you can't be destroyed when the first plan goes out the window. You have to have your best case and worst case scenario plans in your back pocket heading into the race. That way you can make appropriate decisions on the fly. What would be appropriate? And then we're going to have to wrap this up, but, um, like what would be appropriate backup plans for me? It was starting to be more strict with my heart rate being like, mm-hmm. I still have over an hour left and I need to keep this in check. Otherwise I know. So I, I never have done that in a race ever looked and decided mm-hmm. how hard I pushed based on what my heart rate was telling me. Never done that in my entire life until Saturday. It's just default backup plan. Didn't think about it before, but I was like, this makes sense to me. And it made me salvage a race in which, you know, again, I didn't run slower than the previous year. So obviously I salvaged a good race, a PR technically for me still mm-hmm. on the course. Like what would be some other good back? Like how do you like navigate a backup plan? I ran a half marathon length OCR race one time and Cody Mutt was there. And he that year was the year he won the trail marathon and 50K mm-hmm. championships. Unless he won the 50K and 50 mile championship that year. Within like a month or two of each other, he won both. So I knew I could not touch him on this, but I knew that I was also better than the next best person. But I get complacent in in races that are that long. So my MO would have been to sit with third and fourth place until I decided it was time to make my move. But in OCR, you can't really do that because if you fall off an obstacle or miss a spear, then all that energy you saved up goes right out the window on burpees and now you're behind. So sitting and kicking doesn't really work. So my plan was run with Cody as long as possible. And my bailout point was one of two points. If I started to hurt and people were still in contact, I was going to drop off immediately and latch onto them. But if I started to hurt and they were dropping, I was going to stay on him no matter how bad it got until we were physically out of sight. And so that's how the race went. I ended up making it about right around same as you, two and a half, three miles. I was hurting by a mile and a half, but there were people about 300 meters back. I needed to get out of sight because if they see me drop at that point, that's blood in the water. 
if I get out of sight and then drop off him, they have no clue what happened. Yep. So that, that was having two options to the same plan. I like that plan, by the way. Yeah. Overwork, but know by overworking, you're going to build yourself a cushion mm -hmm. to allow you the, uh, to finish where you'd like or yeah. having a bailout plan, having, having rules for bailing. And I knew the course. It was South Carolina. The first couple miles were on trail and then it got technical. And I was confident with my skill set that I was going to be worse on the trail than I was off trail. So I know if I could get away out of sight, even if I'm hurting, I'm going to, I'm going to bushwhack faster than the guys closing. So yeah. I knew that that one would work. If it started technical and then opened up, I would have just hung back because I can't blow up in plain sight. Yeah. Okay. Anything else come to mind? No, I'm, I'm very happy with this episode. I like diving into your race because we get to learn from your suffering. Yeah. And I like what John's what John has proposed to us because it's got me thinking it's a good, positive feeling episode to me. Thanks to you and John. John's going to cost me 200 bucks. So you owe me, John. <laughs> For the new pair of shoes I'm going to have to buy when I already have more than I need. I think it's worth I think, I think if anything, I think it's, I've always been curious. Is it worth the experiment? Is it worth scratching the itch? And I think at this point, what from my through my eyes, from what I've heard from people and seen, the answer is yes. And I think most people who are waffling over spending the money on it, if you have it to spend, I think your answer probably should be yes. You can't make a decision yeah. on it till you know what it feels like. I was not a proponent of super shoes for a long time, but looking at them as a training tool, reduce impact and increase workload has me really, really intrigued. Well, you have to get back to us on that with your progression. <laughs> well, we went too long. We got to go. We do. We always cut these things close, don't we? It's the only way to live, Kirk. A quarter mile at a time. On the edge. I agree. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.